This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. In this, our fifth shiur on Masachet Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnayot, we'll continue to discuss the second chapter of Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. The chapter, as we discussed last time, uh, deals mostly with the continuation of the witnesses, how the witnesses come, even on Shabbat, uh, what they bring with them, who they bring with them. On Shabbat, we're also told that uh, after entering the courtyard of Beit Yazek, uh, originally they weren't supposed to leave, and Rabban Gamliel Zakein made a takana that changed that halacha. Then we're told how the witnesses are interrogated by the Beit Adin, and then how the Beit Din sanctifies uh, the new moon, followed by a couple of what seem to be uh, appendices to the uh, to the Perak in Mishnayot Chetet, uh, where we're told how Rabban Gamliel used to use charts in order to uh, try to ascertain what exactly the witnesses saw, and the two stories of puzzling instances of acceptance of witnesses by Rabban Gamliel. Um, we do have to discuss why these appendices are appendices and are not uh, put into the chapter. Uh, where we would expect them to be, namely between Mishnah Vav and Zayin, uh, since they're related to the interrogation of the witnesses, which is discussed in Mishnah uh, Vav. In any event, this gives us our overview of the chapter, with the one glaring exception of Mishnayot, Bet Adalid, which talk about the uh, Shluchim, the uh, messengers who were sent out, to inform the public of when the new moon was sanctified, who replaced, as the Mishnah describes, the Masuot, which are described in some detail, the bonfires that originally had been lit in order to inform the public of the date of the sanctification of the uh, of the new moon, of the new month, and of the festivals that occurred during uh, uh, during that month. Um, if we try to ask, what is the overall theme? Uh, if the first part of the Perak, at least through Mishnah Vav, uh, again with the exception of Bet through Dalit, is talking about the witnesses, continuing Perak Aleph, but starting from, uh, and they return, of course, the witnesses play a role again in Mishnayot, Chetet, but uh, in Mishnah Zayin, there's no discussion of witnesses at all. And so, if we're looking for an overall topic that's dealt with in this chapter, I think we have to look elsewhere than the witnesses, and where we can locate the overall theme of the chapter is not in the witnesses, but in the Beit Din. The Beit Din, again, other than Mishnayot, Bet through Dalid, uh, appear in every single Mishnah. And in fact, this could be uh, one of our main clues in understanding why the Mishnayot of Perak Bet, even though at the beginning they're continuing the theme of 
Perak Aleph and continuing to discuss the journey of the witnesses, why these are separated from Perak Aleph and put into Perak Bet. Uh, there are several reasons for this, some of which we've touched on, but uh, one of the reasons is because the first Mishnah already brings the Beitin into the picture. Im enan makirinoto, if who doesn't recognize them? The Beitin. The Beitin to, to which they're traveling doesn't know who they are. Okay? And then the Mishnah continues, Barishanah you mikablin edutachodesh mikol adam. At first they used to accept testimony from anyone. Who used to accept? Again, the Beitin. So as long as we were talking about the journey of the witnesses before their arrival, before they actually have to stand in front of the Beitin, we're still in chapter 1. Parakalif deals with the journey of the witnesses, concluding with Al-Mahalach Laila Vayom Yotzim Haidim L'Kidush HaChodesh Yotzim L'Kidush HaChodesh That's what we had in chapter 1. Chapter 2 opens with the witnesses as they are about to appear uh, in front of the court. Just one uh, remark uh, on the side is that we noted that in chapter 1 there is actually a Beitin that is mentioned and that, that's the, um, the local Beitin and there is one other mention of the uh, larger Beitin, the, 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 the uh, high court in uh, Mishnah Zayin uh, uh, narrating the anecdote of Tuvia Harofe, uh, where, but, but the point there was simply to discuss which witnesses, uh, are kosher and which witnesses are pasul. So the court is mentioned in passing at a couple of points in, in, uh, Perak Aleph, particularly the local court which, uh, plays a role in sending the Edim on to the high court. And the high court is also mentioned in passing at, at one point. But uh, the main point, again, of the first chapter is the journey of the witnesses. Tarek continues the journey of the witnesses, but already taking into account the role of the Beit Din. So the Beit Din is really the theme of, of Perak uh, Bet. Now, this idea can be reinforced in several ways, and let's open with... Um, uh, uh, relating to Mishnayot Bet through Dalid, which we discussed at some length last uh, last year, these Mishnayot seemingly have nothing to do with the Beit Din. They have to do with the Shluchim. Of course, the, it's the Beit Din that decides when to send out the Shluchim, when to set set the bonfires. But the relationship to the Beit Din goes much deeper, as we noted. Uh, in last in our last shiur, the reason why these mishnayot are mentioned at this juncture are uh, is not only because of the association between barishona mishakilkelu hitkinu the use of similar language a takana of the court to to to, to prevent the uh, disruption of the kiddush uh, hachodesh by uh, outside. Uh, factors. It's not only that, but it's also the link between Mishnah Dalit and Hay of Lo Zazu Misham and Barishana Lo Hayu Zazim Misham. And as we noted, the link here is between the witnesses and the Shluchim slash Masuot. 
the witnesses and the shluchim slash masaot both represent the centrality of the court. And we noted that we have the same, the very same idea in Perak Aleph in the strange positioning of Mishnah Gimel uh, at the very beginning of the laws of Kiddush HaChodesh, part of the reason being to juxtapose it to Mishnah Dalet and again to uh, interrelate the witnesses and the shluchim. The cyclical movement of witnesses moving towards the court and then the shluchim or the masuot going out from the court, this cyclical movement uh, underscores the very central role that the Beitin plays in the spiritual life of, uh, uh, of Am Yisrael. And so, Mishnayot Bet and Dalid, while not overtly dealing with the Beitin, but the, the real theme that they're trying to underscore again is the uh, centrality of the authority of the Beitin. So this just reinforces the point that we've been making, that the overall theme of Parakbet is in fact the Beitin. Let's examine the same idea from a, uh, from a couple of other standpoints. The Parak opens uh, with the Beitin deciding not to accept, uh, not to accept witnesses. Now, uh, this halacha, although the Mishnah presents it in a sort of very matter-of-fact way, we have the minim, the minim are uh, probably the baitusim, as the Tosefta notes, uh, are trying to disrupt the process of Kiddush HaChodesh. And so the court counters this by instituting shelo yehu mekablin ela min makirim. We will only accept testimony from those whom we know, those whom we know that we can trust. And then the Mishnah juxtaposes to this the uh, takana of uh, abolishing the bonfires and replacing them with shluchim, again, for the, for the same reason. But, but let's look a little more closely at the uh, uh, takana not to accept witnesses. What the Mishnah is telling us is that mekar hadin, as far as Torah law is concerned, uh, we really should be sanctifying the month. We have witnesses. We have no reason to doubt that these witnesses are telling us the truth. We simply don't know who they are, but doesn't every Jew enjoy a cheskat kashrut? Min Torah, he does. But because of this socio-political problem that was created where you have groups within the Jewish people who are contesting the, the way in which the court establishes the, the new month. So the court, by fiat, decides not to accept witnesses. They say, you might be a perfectly valid witness. It might be that uh, right now we should be sanctifying the new month. We're deciding not to sanctify it because we, we've made a rule and we're going to abide by that rule. The rule is that any witnesses that we don't know, we're not going to accept. And so you already begin to see in, at this Mishnah that the balance of power has shifted from the Edim to the court. And this is a theme that, as we'll see, runs throughout the second chapter of Rosh Hashanah. The first chapter of Rosh Hashanah, uh, I will remind you, focuses very much on the importance of the Edim. It is so vitally important for the Edim to come and uh, to come at the right time and, and tell the court what they saw at the right time when the court can act on it, 
that they can even violate the Shabbat. That's how important it is to have testimony, to have people who can come and say, we saw, we saw the new moon, as the Gemara formulates it, mitzvah the Kadesh al Okay, We want to have the Re'iyah at the center of our sanctification of the new month. That's the uh, very crucial importance of the Edim. The second chapter really focuses us on the importance of the Beitin. Now, of course, the Beitin uh, cannot act on their own. The Beitin can only act when the witnesses come. Uh, nonetheless, uh, as the Mishnah tells us at various junctures throughout Perak Bet, the court has a certain autonomy in dealing with the Edim. And the first instance of that, of course, is in the very first Mishnah. The very first Mishnah where we're told that uh, bona fide witnesses, that the court can come and disqualify them because of a rule that they've established. And we already see the court sort of taking over and saying to the Edim, you may be the ones who saw the, the, uh, the new moon, but we're the ones who determine whether what you see has any validity, whether it will be accepted by the community, whether we will allow that sighting of the new moon to actually guide the community in sanctifying the new month and, and sanctifying the festivals that, that, occur during, uh, uh, that occurred during that month. Um, uh, a very dramatic instance of the authority of the court, of course, comes up in the very last Mishnah, uh, and in the very, the very last Mishnah, uh, where Rabbi Yoshua is utterly convinced that the witnesses are false witnesses, nevertheless, Rabbi Akiva tells him, uh, Even if Rabban Gamliel followed false witnesses, it doesn't matter. Whatever Rabban Gamliel did is done. The authority of the court, and ultimately it's to this authority that Rabbi Yoshua bows, and uh, Rabban Gamliel acknowledges it by saying, Bo v'shalom Rabbi v'talmidi, Rabbi b'chokhmah v'talmidi shekibalta alecha et varai. You might be Rabbi b'chokhmah, uh, you might be wiser than I, more knowledgeable, uh, have deeper understanding of uh, what how the halacha should in fact be determined. Num- nonetheless, Okay, I salute you because you are Talmidi. You are my disciple, Shekibalta Alechad Varai, because you accepted upon yourself my words. The, the acceptance of the court's authority is the bottom line of the chapter. So the court, the, the chapter opens with the authority of the court to reject witnesses they don't like. The chapter closes, in fact, with what you could see as a kind of mirror image of what opens the chapter, namely, the court accepting witnesses whom we think they ought not to like. Uh, the reader, presumably, going through the story, presumably has a lot of sympathy for Rabbi Yoshua, is puzzled by Rabban Gamliel's acceptance of these witnesses, and the bottom line is, it doesn't matter. Kol Rabban Gamliel asui. In other words, the same way that the court at the beginning of the chapter has the authority to uh, disqualify witnesses that they don't want to accept. At the end of the chapter, the court has the authority to accept witnesses whom uh, logic would seem to dictate should not 
be accepted. It's interesting that the connection between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter is reinforced in, in several ways. First of all, let's note how uh, there's a key word that plays a major role both in the first Mishnah and in the concluding story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. The word is lekabel. Okay, the acceptance of witnesses is what the first Mishnah is all about, and of course the Chidush is that witnesses that ought to be accepted in the end, the court decides not to accept. And in the last Mishnah, the word Lekabel reappears. At first it reappears in the very same form, in which it appeared at, in the first Mishnah, namely, Vikiblan Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel accepted the witnesses. That appears twice, first in the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri and Rabban Gamliel, and then again in the uh, uh, famous and dramatic encounter between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. In both cases, Kiblan Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel puzzling, puzzlingly accepted them. And so here we have the the wordplay that reinforces the connection between puzzling rejection or perhaps arbitrary rejection of the witnesses and um, uh, what seems to be arbitrary acceptance of witnesses on the uh, on the part of the court. But the interesting thing is that the word lekabel. Uh, recurs at the end of the story. The same way that it opens the story of Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Yoshua, it also closes the story of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yoshua, but this time with a very different meaning. Rabbi B'chokhmah v'talmidi shekibalta alecha et varai, that you accepted upon yourself my words. Here the acceptance is not the court accepting the witnesses. Here the acceptance is Rabbi Yoshua, perhaps representing the community at large, accepting the authority of the court. Now, this uh, double use of the term Lekabel produces a very interesting dialectical interplay between two kinds of Kabbalah. The uh, acceptance of witnesses by the court, which might even appear in many cases to be arbitrary, reinforcing the sense that the court is a very powerful, uh, autonomous body that has a lot of power in deciding where and when and how to accept witnesses. And the end of the story, which sort of reverses the balance and says that ultimately authority needs to be accepted. Whereas Rabban Gamliel has authority only because Rabbi Yoshua in the end decides to accept it. Uh, this dialectical notion of authority is something that we'll uh, deal with at uh, much greater length when we examine in detail the story between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, something that we'll, we'll do uh, later on. Um, but uh, let's get back to the theme that we were discussing in our overview of the chapter. The term Kabbalah, the same way that it frames the story as an envelope structure framing the story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, the same term, Lekabel, also frames the chapter, an envelope structure of the chapter, 
The chapter opens with Lekabel and it closes with Lekabel. It opens with Lekabel, representing the authority of the court. It closes with Lekabel in this dialectical role of the court wielding authority and the court needing to have its authority uh, accepted. So this word play as well reinforces the connection between the beginning and the end of the chapter. Uh, by the way, as an aside, I've used several times the term envelope structure. Envelope structure in Hebrew, chatima, me'en, p'ticha, also uh, known in the professional literature by the Latin name inclusio, uh, uh, refers to literary units that open and close with uh, uh, associations or parallels, uh, things that associate the beginning and the end uh, of the unit. This is a very common feature of the Mishnah. We find it in many Mishnah chapters as well as in other units. In fact, we noted a similar structure in the main body of the first chapter of Rosh Hashanah, Mishnah Dalid, opening with Al Shnei Chodashim Tashabat, thus opening the main body of the laws of the witnesses, Eidei Achodesh, and at, uh, at the end of Mishnah Tet, Shalmalach Lailavayom Mechalilina Tashabat. Okay, so you have Mechalilina Tashabat framing this unit as well. That's also an inclusio, this time uh, not on the level of uh, an entire chapter, but on the level of a Mishnah collection uh, embedded within within the chapter. In in our chapter, Perak Bet, we have a an envelope structure framing the chapter uh, as a whole, and as we saw, reinforcing the idea that what the chapter is really talking about is the power and authority uh, of the court. A uh, couple of other examples uh, of this uh, we also see in Mishnah Hay the authority of the court not only to uh, uh, to accept witnesses and to determine Kiddush HaChodesh, but also the authority of the court to set aside a law. And in fact, in three places in the Mishnah, Mishnah Aleph, Bet, and He, we have Takanot, we have institutions, which is another uh, way in which the court expresses its power. In this case, in Mishnah He, by suspending... Uh, by suspending the laws of uh, of Tchum, okay, and allowing the witnesses to move about uh, to move about freely, here in this Mishnah as well as in Mishnah Vav, you might again see that the authority of the court is not uh, something that's detached entirely from the uh, people who appear before the court because. Uh, presumably the reason for uh, this dispensation of the witnesses to travel about freely after having violated the Tchum Shabbat in Mishnah is rooted in the consideration mentioned explicitly at the end of Mishnah Vav, the, um, uh, the fact that the court interrogated witnesses who were no longer necessary, Bishvil Shehu Regilim Lavo so that witnesses should not feel they've traveled in vain, and then they won't want to come. So you see that again, the court realizes that their standing and their authority depends upon their interaction with the people. 
This, again, was a message in Mishnayot Bet and Dalit, in order to reinforce the authority of the court. So the court stages these bonfires where we have this chain of fire linking the diaspora with uh, uh, with the spiritual center in uh, uh, in Yerushalayim. So at several places you you see that the that on the one hand the importance of the court, the authority of the court, their centrality in the life of the people is the dominant theme. But at several points the Mishnah stresses that. The uh, court is well aware that they are dependent upon the people. Uh, this is something we can see as well in Mishnah Zayin. Mishnah Zayin tells us, Rosh Beidin Omer Mekudash. The one who uh, renders the Psaq, renders the ruling that it's Mekudash, is the Rosh Beidin. But then, V'chol Ha'am Mekudash Mekudash. When a word is repeated in this way, then it seems to be a way of giving validity. It seems to be a, a formulaic statement. Mikudash is a ruling. But the sanctification is not done by the Rosh Beitin. The Rosh Beitin cannot sanctify the new month. He can issue the ruling that the new month is sanctified. The one who actually sanctifies the new month by ritually reciting Mikudash Mikudash is Kol Ha'am. And uh, in this connection, think also about the uh, common custom under the chuppah for the witnesses to say mikudeshet mikudeshet, in other words, to ratify that this has actually happened. Now, I don't think it has quite the same halachic standing there as I believe it has uh, in this mishnah, but I think it's done for for, for similar reasons, it's to show that the community is ratifying uh, something and is and the community's affirmation of it is an integral part of its actually happening. Uh, this is a point we'll be coming back to when we begin to study Paragimel uh, as well. Um, a couple of final points related to the authority of the court as, it, uh, uh, as it's expressed in this chapter. Uh, one of these points is uh, uh, the way in which the Mishnah describes the interrogation of the witnesses. Uh, the Mishnah says, Ketzad Bodkim uh, How would they uh, investigate, interrogate the witnesses? Uh, and we're told that they used to bring one in, Umachnisin Atagadol Shabahem. They would first take the uh, uh, the greater one of the witnesses, the one who has a greater social standing, and they would say to him, Emor Ketzad Rita Talvana, they'd ask him what he saw, did you see it this way, that way, and then they would bring in the second one and interrogate him in similar fashion. And if they saw that uh, the testimony was mechuvan, in other words, that they, the two testimonies conform to one another, so then, the uh, uh, then the court would be able to determine that the uh, that the month should be sanctified. Now the language in this Mishnah is very reminiscent of a similar Mishnah in Sanhedrin Paragimel. What I'm about to embark on is uh, intertextual study of the Mishnah, but in this case, intertextual in the sense of 
uh, of uh, uh, different Mishnayot. There's also intertextual study when you read the Mishnah uh, against the backdrop of Beraitot and, and the like. But in this case, we're reading one Mishnah against the backdrop of another Mishnah. Um, there's a term that's often used in, in contemporary biblical study called inner biblical exegesis. So I like to call what I'm about to do now inner Mishnah exegesis, where you read one Mishnah in light of the other. The idea of uh, interrogation of witnesses comes up in uh, Sanhedrin, Perak Gimel, Mishnah Vav. Later on, at the end of Perak Dalit, it, it's also brought in for Eidei Nefashot. But the one that's more germane to our current discussion is the interrogation of Eidei Mamonot, described in Sanhedrin, Perak Gimel, Mishnah Vav. Ketzad Bodkim Etaidim, the same question that opens our Mishnah. Notice a sentence that does not appear in our Mishnah. They would bring them in and, um, and, and they would threaten them. And they would remove all uh, other people. And leave only the Gadol Shebahem, which brings us back to our Mishnah. And they would say to him, how do you know, etc., etc., similar to the Omrimlo in our Mishnah, the Omrimlo Emor Ketzad Rita Talvara, they say to him, how did you see the new moon? And uh, then a consideration is raised in both Mishnayot about factors that could disqualify the testimony off the bat. And then the Mishnah in Sanhedrin continues, Vachakach machnisim et hasheni, just as in our Mishnah Vav, Vachakach hayu machnisim et hasheni, uvodkim oto, okay, again in both Mishnayot, im nimtzu divrahem mechuvanim, so in our case it says edutan kayemet, if the testimony is conformed, then edutan kayemet, in the Mishnah Sanhedrin it says, if the testimony is conformed, then nosim benotnim badavar, then they would begin to deliberate, uh, uh, to deliberate the matter. Now, uh, there are a couple of interesting differences between the two Mishnayot. The similarities are very, uh, are very uh, apparent between them. The, the language is very similar, and the things that are described are very similar. The two differences are the preliminary and the end. In terms of the preliminary, the the uh, Mishnah and Sanhedrin opens with a threat to the witnesses that is completely omitted from the witnesses of Kiddush HaChodesh. Is that because we want to encourage them? Perhaps, but I think there's another reason that we'll get to presently. The other difference is that in the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, after uh, the court sees that the uh, testimony conforms, the testimony of two witnesses uh, uh, conform, uh, then they begin to deliberate. And then there's a whole discussion of, uh, of, uh, wh- uh, how many judges have to decide one way and the other way and so on. Um, all that is left out of our vision. It simply says, if the testimony conforms, Edutan Kayemet. Perhaps our Mishnah is just, uh, deciding to, uh, uh, abbreviate matters a little bit, uh, relying on what we know already from Masechet Sanhedrin, but again, I think there's a deeper reason. The deeper reason 
for the first phenomenon, the reason why the iyum, uh, the threat, was left out, was already noted by a 17th century Italian commentator to the Mishnah, Rabbi Moshe Zakut, in, in his commentary Kol Haremes, who says the reason why the iyum, the threat, is left out of our Mishnah is because there's no need for a threat. In most cases, the court threatens the witnesses before they begin, in other words, it, it admonishes them, it warns them, uh, listen, you're about to do something very important, very serious, you, uh, you have to uh, be very, very sure that you do this properly and that, to, that you know what you're about to do. That's what's necessary in most cases, in Dinei Momonot, in Dinei Nefashot, at the end of Perak Dalid, the admonition to the witnesses is, is, uh, is even far more developed and far more severe for readily apparent reasons. There is no need, says the Kol Haremes, uh, for an admonition in the case of Edut HaChodesh for the simple reason that the court knows in advance what it is that the witnesses are supposed to be seeing. Uh, the court can calculate when the new moon will uh, uh, will actually appear astronomically, and using that, they'll also be able to calculate when the new moon ought to be visible, and when it's visible, how exactly it will look, where it will appear on the sky, how big it will be, what its position will be relative to, to the setting sun, and so on. These are all things that they should be able to calculate using astronomical calculations, uh, and therefore, the court doesn't need to admonish the witnesses. They know very well whether the witnesses are telling the truth. In fact, if the witnesses were to contradict each other, the court would know exactly which witness is telling the truth. They wouldn't think that they can believe one witness or disbelieve the other one. They would know exactly which witness uh, is telling the truth because they know which, uh, which one of them conforms uh, to their calculations. So for that very reason... The Kol HaRemes says, there's no need for an admonition, and I would add, for the exact same reason, there's no need for deliberation. When the two, the testimony of the two witnesses uh, corroborate one another, the, the court doesn't have to deliberate at all. The court knows right away that these two witnesses are telling, are telling the truth. There's, there's nothing really at stake here that needs to be deliberated. It's the rare case where there will be a deliberation. Of course, these rare cases do occur, and two such cases appear at the very end, uh, appear at the very end of, of our chapter. Um, so, um, uh, so this Mishnah again underscores uh, the power of the court. And now the power of the court is not only because they wield authority, the power of the court uh, if the Kol Harem is, is correct, which I believe he is, the power of the court is also rooted in their knowledge. As opposed to most issues which the court has to decide, where the court has only the information that's brought before it by witnesses, there's only testimony and evidence uh, can, can be brought before the court, and the court can only weigh the evidence and sift it and decide which evidence is reliable and which is not, when it comes to Kiddush HaChodesh, the court has greater power, partly because they also have more knowledge, because in this case they're not entirely dependent on the witnesses. They can't know 
for a fact whether the witnesses saw the new moon. But if the witnesses survive their interrogation, if they pass the interrogation, and then, of course, if the two testimonies conform to one another, then the court knows very well that the, that the witnesses are telling the truth. And that's why there's no need for uh, admonishing at the beginning. There's no need for, and in most cases, for deliberation at the uh, for deliberation at the end, and uh, one further point in the Mishnah, which might also reflect the, uh, a similar idea, is the charts that Rabban Gamliel used in Mishnah Chet. Uh, these charts can be understood in one of two ways. When Rabban Gamliel uh, shows the charts to the witnesses and says. Did, did it look like this or did it look like that? Which did you see, this or that? We can understand this in one of two ways. One way is that Rabban Gamliel is trying to help the witnesses to express themselves. The witnesses, when you say to the, to, to the witnesses, well, what did it look like? The witnesses may not be very adept in describing what exactly uh, it looked like. Uh, you know, uh, uh, seven degrees above the horizon, uh, and uh, you know a uh, a crescent of uh, fifteen uh, degree angle. Uh, how exactly would they go about describing it? They would have difficulty in doing so. And so, uh, Rabban Gamliel and his court helped them along by showing them pictures and saying, "Well, which picture corresponds to what you saw?" And that'll help them to to ra- actually clarify what they're intending to testify to. Much the same way as uh, when someone comes to describe a suspect to the police, the police will very often try to uh, put together a composite picture of what he looks like, because again, it's it's difficult from a verbal description by the by the witness to piece together what exactly he looked like. Whereas if the uh, whereas if the if the police artist uh, tries to uh, divine from the verbal description what it might have looked like, and then gets gets the uh, affirmation of the witness. So then you can uh, get get a better picture. That's one way of understanding what Rabban Gamliel is trying to do. But based on what we've said up till now, I think we would prefer the other way of reading Rabban Gamliel, which is that Rabban Gamliel is not trying to help the witnesses so much as he's testing them. By showing them the picture, he knows which picture is the correct picture. When he says, did it look like this picture or that picture, then based on the answer, he, he has another way of gauging whether the witnesses are, uh, are in fact telling, telling the truth uh, or not. Uh, to conclude this year, I want to come back once again to the opening of the chapter and the closing of the chapter. We, we noted how the key word, lekabel, brings the, these two parts of the chapter together, frames the chapter. But it's worth noting another couple of features uh, of these uh, two stories at the beginning of the chapter and two stories at the end of the chapter. That itself is an interesting connection between them. Okay, We have two stories here and two stories there. All four stories relate to disputes about when it, when and how the month should be sanctified. But there is an interesting difference between the two stories at the beginning of the chapter and the two at the end. The two stories at the beginning of the chapter 
both refer to challenges from outside the court, the minim and the kutim, which are both sectarian groups that do not belong to uh, what we would call Torah-true Judaism. Uh, and uh, these two groups are uh, trying to interfere with the process of Kiddush HaChodesh at a particular juncture in history, namely during the period of Bayit Sheni, when the Sanhedrin sits in Yerushalayim, and uh, the Sanhedrin now has to contend with these splinter groups outside of the uh, world of Torah True Judaism, which are trying to disrupt the procedure of Kiddush HaChodesh. In both cases, the solution is a Takana. The court wields their authority, institutes a Takana, and basically undermines the ability of any of these groups to disrupt the process of Kiddush HaChodesh. At the end of the chapter, we again have two stories, but in this case, it's a different time frame, and it's a different kind of a challenge. The time frame now is Yavna. We're now dealing with uh, the period of Rabban Gamliel, after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, uh, when the court has been established in Yavna, and Rabban Gamliel heads the court, and now we have two disputes, and in both cases the challenge comes not from outside the court, but from inside the court. And in both of these cases, there's no takana. Okay? The way of confronting this challenge is not by instituting takanot that undermine the standing of your rival. In both of these cases, uh, in the first case, of course, uh, the challenge is not serious enough to warrant a very powerful response on the part of Rabban Gamliel because Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri issues his challenge before the witnesses come to Yavne and are accepted by Rabban Gamliel. The second case, however, is a very serious challenge by Rabbi Yoshua, and Rabban Gamliel, in this case, may not issue a takana, but he does issue a gzera. But the gzera differs very much in its form and its content from the takanot that open the chapter, and uh, this is the uh, point that we'll be discussing at, uh, at, in some detail and at some length uh, for the bulk of the next shiur. Uh, so what I'd like you to think about in advance of the next shiur, please read carefully the story of Rabban Gamliel Rabbi Yoshua. Read it very carefully. See if all the details in the story make sense. See, see if everything in the story seems to proceed the way uh, you would expect whether all the people in the story behave in a way that uh, that makes sense to you. And uh, we'll open next year, as I say, with a, uh, a fairly extended discussion of this story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua at the end of the second chapter of Rosh Hashanah.